Part 4. What's Next? Living 8 Circuit Yoga. Here I'll talk about how we can use 8 Circuit Yoga to root our personality in something deeper than the status quo, to transform the mundane world into something fresh and new, and redefine our experience of what it is to be human. Rooting the personality in something deeper than the status quo requires us to become aware of the higher circuits and then consciously activate them. When we do so, our understanding of what it is to be human changes. It expands. In Jungian terms, this process is called individuation and as the name indicates, is highly personal. But I want to be clear that this isn't about individuality as we typically understand it. Status quo individuality is about strengthening the story of me in order to improve our social status game playing. Jungian individuation and Eight Circuit Yoga is about exploring inner landscapes and our experiences of the world around us so that we can tap into an inner source of inspiration. This brings novelty into culture and society. How this is done varies from person to person the end result, the characteristics of one's transformed personality, and how the personality will express itself in society cannot be predicted in advance. Anyone who tells you that they know what the end result of this process will be is misleading you. On the left is a visual representation of how dull and gray a status quo life can be. The pleasures found in the status quo are mostly tied to societal power, status, and manipulation games. We use people, objects, and situations to feel good. In circuits one to four, environmental imprints and genetic predispositions are your masters. Limiting your humanity to the status quo is a waste of potential. In the words of Peter Kingsley, we are the seeds of so much. Human existence is nothing but the divine life unlived, end quote. Marie-Louise von Fraun says that the individual requires an inner experience of the transcendental if he is to hold his own against the physical and moral power of the world. Otherwise, he succumbs to it. End quote. On the right is a visual representation of life with all eight circuits activated and integrated in a healthy fashion. This is a life with full knowledge of the cart rider and the ox. This creates a personality rooted in something deeper, more whole, less divided and divinely human. To live this way, we must activate the higher circuits and do so in a responsible manner. And then once activated, we must integrate the experience of the higher circuits into our daily lives in gentle, healthy ways. Turn on, tune in, drop out was a phrase popularized by Timothy Leary in the 1960s. This phrase became a rallying call for social revolution inspired by psychedelic drugs and that's how usually it's referred to these days. But the meaning of this term was much more esoteric and transformative. In 1967, Larry gave an awesome lecture at UCLA. You can find it on YouTube. He described the importance of finding one's true inner sacred self. And once we make this discovery, he says, we'll eventually drop out of the status-obsessed robotic routines and social power games that run society. To some, this slogan sounded like he wanted everyone to dramatically drop out of every responsibility in their life. There was a huge backlash against Leary and the US President Richard Nixon called him the most dangerous man in America. But in actuality, looking back, 
without the politics and hysteria of the time, it's easier to see that what he was proposing was more subtle and individual. In our own way, each of us must quietly, aesthetically, tastefully, respectfully, and gradually drop out of our circuit one to four routines, roles, and behaviors. But how exactly does one do this? I can answer that by using this very slogan, turn on. This means we need to activate circuit five, then turn on the higher circuits, tune in. We need to tune in to the message of the divine archetypes and encounter the self within. Drop out. Once we've turned on and tuned in, we subtly, quietly, tastefully, respectfully, aesthetically, and gradually drop out of the robotic routines and social power games that run the world around us. Drop out means dropping out of status quo compulsions, emotional politics, and social definitions of who we should be. We don't necessarily have to change anything major in our exterior lives, like our job or where we live or who we spend our time with, although it is possible that these things will change. Turning on, tuning in, and dropping out all happen within your body. The body is the doorway to activating the higher circuits. You can start this process by turning on circuit five. Increase your awareness of the body's sensations and awareness of the thoughts that arise in the intellect. Some of you may remember the Pixar film WALL-E where people in the future are glued to their screens. They go about their entire life totally tuned into their screens. They eat without awareness of what they're doing. They're so caught up in the status quo and in their circuit one to circuit four imprints that they even forget how to walk. And this happens to a lot of us. We go through life disconnected from our own bodies. It's almost like the sensation of being embodied has been shut down. It's common for people to lose awareness of their living, breathing, sensory apparatus. It's almost as if we're just disembodied heads walking around. I covered these circuit five activations back in the circuit five section, but just want to put these back up on screen. The downside to most of these is that they require you to do something for circuit five to activate. It's like you need to take action to get high. And with every high, there's a come down. Now, I'm not criticizing these activation methods. If this is how you turn on, go for it. It's wonderful to feel the peace of a circuit five vibe of being in the present moment. But, and I'm just telling you how it is, become dependent or even addicted to your favorite circuit five activation. If your favorite circuit five activation is not consistently available to you, then you're stuck in the status quo. Speaking of getting high, let's dive into the subject of psychedelics finally. Uh, I've alluded to this a few times throughout the talk. They are such a hot topic these days. They're all over the news and social media. There are best-selling books. Psychedelics are a subset of hallucinogenic drugs whose primary effect is to trigger non-ordinary states of awareness. These are known as trips. Under the right circumstances, these trips can cause mild to incredibly strong higher circuit activations. The classical psychedelics and the psychedelics with the largest scientific and cultural influence are mescaline, LSD, psilocybin, and DMT. Marijuana is understood to have some psychedelic properties as well. But unless combined with other activation activities, it mostly activates circuit five and stays contained. 
Ancient cultures, and not just indigenous cultures, regularly used psychoactive drugs as sacraments. In recent years, many of these substances have proven to be incredibly beneficial in therapeutic sessions. Some of the research results have been pretty remarkable and the media has been promoting psychedelic use. These substances may be the most bang for your buck, most effective way to enter the higher circuits. There may be cases where a person is so stuck in their circuit one to circuit four mindsets that responsible therapeutic and legal use of these substances is necessary to elicit a breakthrough into higher circuit experience. But I've come to understand that psychedelics should be considered as an intervention. Alan Watts said, once you get the message, hang up the phone. Abrasive is a word that comes to mind when I think of the power of psychedelic trips. With psychedelics, one gets pulled into the higher circuits, sometimes rather forcefully. There often isn't a lot of context for what you're experiencing, and depending on the substance you've taken, it could go in various different ways. A typical way is like, you're starting off with a circuit five activation, you're feeling good, things around you seem a little funny, you have some interesting or profound thoughts, and start hearing things that aren't there. Then the room could start melting around you and perhaps you're now surrounded by strange entities or the people around you have become strange entities. This experience could be frightening for others, inspirational and loving. Sometimes it could be both at once. Then everything around you could melt again and suddenly you're out of your body in some ethereal realm. Sometime later, you're sitting back on your couch dazed and confused. The next day, you're back at your desk at work somehow trying to process it all. These experiences can be remarkable, but are temporary. This is a painting of Ramdas by Alex Gray. To paraphrase Ramdas, I kept getting high, but no matter how much I took, I always came down. The fact is, these substances are not necessary for activation of the higher circuits. They may be the most powerful tool in the arsenal, but we don't always have to go all out. If you need to take a drive down to the grocery store, that doesn't mean you need a Formula One race car to get there. Here are some issues with psychedelics. First of all, they're illegal in many places, and there are serious legal consequences to possession and sale of these substances all over the globe. This is no joke, you can do serious jail time for just possession. This is a classic picture of one of Tim Leary's arrests. Second, physical safety. The traditional psychedelics like mescaline, LSD, psilocybin, and DMT, if pure, do not seem to cause overdoses like alcohol, stimulants, opiates, barbiturates. But the illegality of these substances contributes to not knowing exactly what you're taking. You think you're taking LSD, but you could be taking something harmful. These substances need to be used in the right environment. An environment conducive to a positive, enriching experience. This goes a long way to a healthy, stable activation of the higher circuits. This includes being surrounded by the right people who will make sure you stay safe. This is why psychedelics are now used in professional therapeutic sessions. And this is a very promising thing. Larry called this having the right set and setting. Hallucinations can easily cause you to panic or behave in a bizarre way. You could get hurt, you could hurt someone else, or end up arrested for public disruption. Three, there is a real risk of psychological harm, especially for those already suffering from mental health issues, high stress, or trauma. 
If you have a history of paranoia, schizophrenia, or any mental illness, avoid psychedelics. If you are on some forms of medication, such as antidepressants, for example, be very careful to do your research before consuming any of these substances. You can die. 4. Marie-Louise von Franz cautioned against psychedelics with a different kind of concern, and that is that people who take psychedelics are often catapulting themselves into powerful experiences they have no appropriate preparation for. Encounters with the archetypes can be like tapping into a powerful electrical circuit. These are elemental forces within our psyche and the physical world. Encountering them in the middle of a mosh pit at a rock concert while chugging beer isn't conducive to union with the divine. Ayahuasca, the powerful psychedelic indigenous brew I mentioned back in Circuit 6, comes with a lot of cultural baggage. Those that go to South America or secretly attend ayahuasca ceremonies elsewhere participate in rituals that they often don't truly relate to or understand. It's like one is play acting along and then vaulted into this incredible higher circuit experience. The juxtaposition of those two things can create confusion and a sense of falsification to the experience. And not everyone does well when they come back to status quo society. Some struggle to reintegrate into a society that wants nothing to do with higher circuit experiences. 5. Sometimes psychedelics don't produce any substantial change in someone. I've known plenty of people who have taken psychedelics frequently and they've had a lot of fun or weird experiences but they aren't much better off than they were before. As I just mentioned, people often take these substances at music festivals. These people don't automatically leave Coachella or Clock and Flap or Glastonbury enlightened gurus. There was a study that journalist John Ronson reported on where imprisoned criminal psychopaths were given LSD and some unique forms of communal therapy. Many of the psychopaths reported having incredible positive breakthroughs once released from prison, the psychopaths actually reoffended at rates higher than those not in the program. Some of these guys actually murdered people after LSD therapy and admitted to having faked mystical experiences and life-changing revelations in order to make the prison officials happy. So no matter what you hear in the mass media or online, these substances are not a quick fix to your problems. LSD was at the root of Silicon Valley culture. Steve Jobs being one of the most famous users. And the tech industry has taken psychedelics out of their therapeutic and sacramental contexts and reduced them to productivity tools to increase corporate profits and gain a creative edge over competitors. It's great to see marijuana legalization and decriminalization in many parts of the world, but I'm concerned this plant is being co-opted by corporations. Some are reducing it to a pharmaceutical drug, some reduce it to a party drug like alcohol. So as amazing as psychedelics can be, I have to be the party pooper. Folks, transcendent experiences can be had without drugs. Consider the practices of medicine people around the globe. Their practices, which some call shamanism, are designed to induce an experience of union with the cosmos, wherein the cosmos itself seems to speak. Shamanism is an activation of the higher circuits. And some studies show that in like 90% of the world, the altered states of consciousness in shamanism are obtained through monotonous sounds like percussion. This is most typically done with a drum, but also sticks, rattles, and other instruments. This also involves dancing. 
Only in a few of the indigenous cultures studied have medicine workers used psychedelic drugs. But, you know, as with any scientific finding, this could be disputed. Psychedelics can be extremely helpful for many people in the right set and setting, but they're not essential for higher circuit activation. Many mind-altering drugs are legal. Tobacco, caffeine, alcohol, painkillers are the socially sanctioned drugs of today. Terence McKenna and program host Jeffrey Mishlove had a fascinating exchange in the early 90s about how society legitimizes certain drugs. This interview can be found on YouTube. The following points are taken from or inspired by that conversation. Society happily accepts whatever drug dependencies enable the status quo. Caffeine is a perfect example of this. Caffeine stimulates the nervous system and activates the lower circuits. Caffeine allows people to play social games in a more alert, confident fashion. Caffeine is also incredibly habit-forming and brings about anxiety, restlessness, tremors, irregular heartbeat, and trouble sleeping in many people. When coffee was first introduced in Western culture, it was considered a very powerful, almost hallucinogenic drug. Some people would drink it in coffee houses late at night, and it was considered a risque thing to be involved in. Coffee quickly became normalized and turned into a corporate productivity drug. McKenna asks, who can imagine the modern industrial office without coffee? Even the most stingy companies will make sure there is a coffee machine at the office. Its current use is far from its original use as a sacramental drug in Ethiopian native rituals. Tobacco was also initially used as a sacramental drug. It is still used as such by some indigenous cultures. Tobacco use seems to activate a mild circuit high in some people. It takes the edge off the status quo and it's widely abused. I'm sure we all know by now how habit forming and physically harmful abuse of tobacco can be, so no need to go into that. Alcohol has also been used as a religious sacrament for millennia. People still drink sacramental wine every week at Christian services. Despite some real downsides and dangers, alcohol is the party drug of choice for the status quo. Alcohol allows for a general lack of inhibition that can provide both a sense of circuit one safety and also expose imprints in other lower circuits. This can lead to uninhibited behavior that can be outright harmful to oneself and others. Lastly, pharmaceuticals like opiates and barbiturates can activate a circuit one state of warmth, safety, and calm, but this is a false safety. Using painkillers to temper circuit one anxieties has its limited use, but long-term reliance is just plain unhealthy. Avoidance and repression of circuit one anxieties only leads to more pain and suffering in the long run. These medications seem to get stronger all the time, and some people's tolerance continues to grow while others are dying of overdoses in large numbers. Abuse is rampant all over the world. This is considered a crisis. Abuse of these legal methods of consciousness change are keeping us stuck in the status quo, in the lower circuits. An ideal scenario is where someone can activate the higher circuits and be able to reflect on the relationship with these substances, then find the right balance for themselves. Stan and Christina Groff develop what they call holotropic training as a legal alternative to psychedelic therapy. They claim that people experience higher circuit activations, activations similar to psychedelic experiences, by engaging in intense breathing exercises set to music. 
often participants are asked to draw a mandala after the holotropic practice. Similarly, many Westerners have taken up exotic breathing exercises they say are based on Hindu Kundalini Yoga. You'll find many videos like these on YouTube. It's my understanding that these practices are very intense and potentially hazardous for those who have heart issues, high blood pressure, family history of aneurysms, and a predisposition towards mental health issues. There's an old lecture where Ramdas tells the story of an intense holotropic breathwork session where he was totally freaking out. I'm sure there are people who have had very positive experience with these techniques, but to me they seem very risky and unnecessary. Some people are so sick of the culture they've grown up in the culture that shaped their status quo personality, that they decide to start over and either create a new culture from scratch or become an adoptee of another. The 1960s kicked off a wave of Westerners who explored new religions or practices like ceremonial magic in an effort to change themselves for the better. I'm someone who has explored different religious traditions and have been enriched by doing so. But as the saying goes, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Taking on more cultural baggage without a proper higher circuit activation can just cause more trouble and confusion in our lives. Young cautioned Westerners about taking up exotic religions and philosophies. He said, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. They will practice Indian yoga observe a strict diet regime, or mechanically recite mystical texts from the literature of the world, all because they cannot get on with themselves and have not the slightest faith that anything useful can come out of their own souls." End quote. Warnings like this one help me navigate my own moments of confusion about how to live my life after powerful personal experiences and encounters with new religions and philosophies. An older American once came up to me during my visit to India. I knew her for a short while as an acquaintance. She was really steeped in Hinduism, even though she was a Caucasian lady and probably raised Christian. She often dressed in Indian garb and sang Sanskrit chants for hours every day. She told me that she was very frustrated and said, I don't understand how you've had all these experiences. I've been doing everything right, yet nothing happened. I think her case should serve as a warning for those of us who attempt to force change in our lives through taking up exotic cultural and religious beliefs and practices. You can't just pick up a new belief system and start worshipping the goddess, Christ, or Krishna, or Buddha if you don't genuinely feel it. If activating higher circuits is what you want to do, looking within is the way to do it. After higher circuit activation, you might feel drawn by archetypal representations in other cultures or religions. This may result in you participating and sharing in wonderful cultural exchanges. Great. But these new exotic cultures, religions, and philosophies are not a solution for your troubles. They aren't some final destination where you'll find permanent happiness. The early Greek philosopher Empedocles said that the endlessly repeating of the same routines day in day out is no way for people to hear or consciously grasp the things that I am teaching." End quote. To truly begin to reorient one's life, one must activate Circuit 5 in a stable, healthy, and sustainable way. 
Doing so can gradually open the door to higher circuit activations. Paradoxically, the most methodical, steady and safe way is by not doing anything at all. You see, first you need to tap into what's inside. Physically stilling the body and observing what happens in the intellect is the way inside. This is the way to explore your inner and outer world as if you're watching a movie. It's as if you're mining for gold or drilling for oil. The archetypes are waiting. They're available and they're willing to make contact. You probably haven't noticed their outreach because you've been so busy with your status quo life. Once you've activated circuit five, the likelihood of becoming aware of circuit six goes up considerably. And if you encounter the archetype of the divine feminine in a high circuit six state, you can then create a personal relationship with it. After this, external actions like going to church, kneeling, praying, getting down on the floor and take on a deeper personal meaning, even if they might seem awkward still. All that is required to recognize a self is to be still. This is a quote from Ramana Maharshi. He said he became aware of the self by laying down on the floor and becoming very still. In mindfulness meditation, a practice popularized in recent decades by John Kabat-Zinn, it is recommended that people sit non-judgmentally and become aware of what comes up in the mind. Zen and Buddhist meditation practices are the predecessors of this mindfulness meditation movement. But frankly speaking, I must say these practices are so burdened with cultural, religious, and even sometimes superstitious ideas that I think they're not helpful to most secular people. Peter Kingsley's approach is an ancient technique called incubation. This image is an ancient representation of incubation. In incubation, you lay quietly very still, undisturbed, sometimes asleep, but other times still awake. If awake, you allow unconscious thoughts and images to rise in your conscious awareness. In ancient Greece, there were centers of healing, mostly dedicated to a pre-Christian Anthropos figure called Asclepius. One would go to an Asclepius temple and spend a few nights, probably underground. This Anthropos figure would visit people in their dreams, a circuit six activation, and he would provide advice that promoted healing. This is all very similar to Jung's approach to the higher circuits. Jung's way of working with patients and way of turning them on to the higher circuits was to discuss and explore representations in their dreams and then bring their awareness to symbolism and synchronicities in waking life. He did the same himself, but another technique provided him access to circuit five and circuit six on a regular basis. Jung said, I have always tried to make room for anything that wanted to come to me from within. This is what he called active imagination. He would sit quietly, I believe mostly at night, with no distractions, he'd center his attention onto his body and observe what thoughts and images came up in his psyche. As discussed in the section on circuit six, sometimes he'd have elaborate circuit six activations he called fantasies, and he'd interact with seemingly autonomous entities. Von Franz says that the active imagination process consists of, quote, suspending the critical faculty and allowing emotions, affects, 
fantasies, obsessive thoughts, and even waking dream images to come up from the unconscious." End quote. There are undoubtedly other traditions that utilize stillness as a transformational tool. I just mentioned a few. The point I'm trying to make here is that a healthy, stable Circuit 5 activation doesn't come about by you going out into the world to do something. Writer and Jungian analyst Jean Shinoda Bolin described the situation in food terms. Everyone is a sandwich. Each of us is caught in the middle, seemingly pressured by two forces. The top slice of bread represents the powerful forces in what we consider to be the external world. Here you have cultural imprinting, cultural stereotypes that influence our personality and behavior. If we take this world as the only truthful world, we will become limited by what our culture says we can be. The bottom slice of the sandwich, you have the powerful forces acting on us from what we consider to be the inside subjective world of the psyche. These are the archetypes. They influence us whether we know them or not, regardless of what name or particular cultural representation we have of them. We are confronted by a choice. We can be constantly acted upon by all these forces, or we can choose to become aware of the forces that are operating in us and on us. Only through this awareness can we act in ways that are aligned with the Tao, the river of life. The importance of moments of solitude cannot be understated. In solitude, we can experience the self. We can look at the archetypes as partners we can call upon in both the external world and the internal world since they're both two sides of the same coin, the unus mundos. According to the creator of the concept of flow, silence and alone time is required to activate and sustain flow. To activate a more consistent experience of circuit five flow in our lives, we need to routinely create space by stopping our constant activity and learning and practicing how to be still. The late David Hawkins, an American spiritual teacher said, you cannot force the sun to shine brighter than it is. What you do is remove the clouds. And that quote is a great summary of the awareness building approach described in Sit With It, A New Paradigm for Living. This is the short ebook I wrote a few years ago. There's no talk of religious symbolism, mythology, or psychology. It's a very practical book about how we can reduce our compulsions for pleasure and power seeking in the world by simply sitting quietly without distractions once a day. Now, this is easier said than done. Discomfort is felt in the body the moment we try to sit still and thoughts begin to flood the intellect. An important concept to understand is that the discomfort in the body can be understood as a messaging system. It wants to get our attention like a fire alarm or like a car alarm. As the discomfort increases, thoughts arise in our awareness. These thoughts try to solve that discomfort. The thing is that discomfort is a message. It's not a problem to solve. Discomfort is a call for us to pay attention to the body and enter our inner world. If we sit still, once a day, every day, we have an opportunity to observe these powerful sensations that arise in the body and observe the thoughts that arise in the intellect. Over time, 
we can come to realize that the sensations in the body and the thoughts in the intellect operate independently from the observer. They are part of you, but not all of you. You are the observer, and you are something much more vast, something much more expansive. The experience of living from the vantage point of the observer, an observer that has a body and has thoughts, but is also separate from the body and separate from the thoughts, can change our relationship to the people, things, and situations in our lives. I won't get too much into sit with it since that's a whole lecture in itself, but I'll mention a few key points. In sit with it, our relationship to the people, things, and situations in our lives is described by what I call the life wave. A fast wave basically means we're caught up in the world, addicted to activity. A regular practice of stillness and observation of the body and thoughts that arise in the intellect will over time slow our wave. Living a slower wave life allows for more and more opportunities for circuit 5 to be activated without us having to become addicted to some activity that gets us high. If you genuinely want to activate circuit 5 in a safe, legal and stable manner, I recommend that you read the ebook or at least watch some of the sit with it videos on the website to get started. If you don't want to do either of those things, then maybe at least give this a try. Sit in a quiet place for at least three minutes, stay still, observe the sensations in the body, observe the thoughts that pop up in the intellect, become aware of the automated thought routines that come up time and time again, Become aware of what sensations arise in the body time and time again. And then go about your day as usual. The next day, sit again. And repeat this practice every day. Over time, you may be able to sit for longer periods, allowing for more time for you to become acquainted with your body and your robotic thought routines. Let sitting become your baseline practice of circuit five activation. As you go about your day and live your life as normal, there will be other Circuit 5 activations that may work for you. If you feel called to extreme sports, Hindu chanting, Tai Chi, psychedelics in a legal safe location, cool, great, go for it. But always come back to the sitting practice. This ensures that you are activating Circuit 5 in a consistent, gradual way. After doing this practice for years, I have become much better at knowing when I'm in a particular state. Am I being driven by circuit one anxiety? Am I battling for circuit two status? Am I feeling circuit four shame? Am I feeling a circuit five high? I created this pie chart to visualize how I'd like to be spending most of my waking life. I posted this at my workstation and kept it as a screensaver on my phone. Most of the time I spend in the higher circuits is in circuit 5, with unpredictable brief entries into circuit 6, 7, and 8. The borders between the first four circuits and the higher circuits are labeled with an F. The F stands for fear or faith. For me, the only meaningful definition of faith is trust. I don't buy into the idea of blind belief. For me, this is trust in the archetypes and trust in the self. When I cross over from turned on awareness to the status quo, I feel fear. When I cross over from the status quo 
to turn on awareness, I feel faith and trust. This is what's been working for me. Find your own balance. You want to get the balance right depending on your life situation. It's important to know that this isn't about chasing higher circuit highs. It's not about staying high, especially not through compulsive behavior. It's actually the opposite. The message of sit with it is that letting go and slowing down our worldly activity can activate the higher circuits in a non-compulsive, pleasure-seeking way. Author Tom Hartman's approach is to, quote, live on the edge between this world and that world of spirit, end quote. As a human being, it's probably not wise to push yourself to go too far in either direction. We don't want to use spiritual higher circuits driving to avoid the realities of day-to-day -day life. For example, John C. Lilly spent way too much time in the highest circuits, losing his foothold in the world. My favorite Lilly quote is, the thing about insanity is that it's inward sanity. There is outward sanity, that is what society has, and if you have too much insanity, they'll lock you up." End quote. Some of the most supposedly authentic gurus and masters often behave in bizarre ways, and at times they seem to barely be able to function in society. This was the original characterization of Yoda. He was a crazy and incredibly wise hermit. Many simply thought Hindu guru named Karoli Baba was a madman. People have recounted how he'd sometimes sit on human excrement in the road and like to meditate next to the latrines. Often he seemed not to care where he was or what was happening around him. This is probably not what we want to do. I don't think it's conducive or maybe even healthy for most of us in modern day life. So I'll say the following. If this seems too detrimental or too far-fetched or too far out, if this might disrupt the stability in your life, then outright forget about engaging the highest circuits. It may be enough to just learn ways to activate circuit five. It may be enough to acknowledge and become aware of circuit one through four imprints from a circuit five perspective and just kind of stop there. You do your best every day and perhaps try to develop a daily sitting practice. Billions of people have lived without awareness and active engagement of circuit six through eight so there's no shame in that choice if that's what feels right to you. And with that, we've reached the end of this talk. I'm available for one-on-one -on -one sessions, which I call Inner Wisdom Consulting. Again, I want to clarify I'm not an expert or role model, but I am here to help. Here are the kinds of things we can discuss in person or on a call. I don't charge, but I do accept lunch or coffee donations. You can schedule a session with me on the website www.sitwithit.net. So thanks for listening. I wish you well.